0: or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: It is a fast-moving program. That's why we call it Open Line, because uh, those lines are open. We're just flying through questions, answering them to the best of uh, uh, Father's ability or, or whoever happens to be hosting that day. Today is Tuesday, and so here we are with Father Wade Menezes. How are you, Padre?
2: I'm doing great, Tom. Good to have you with us today.
1: I'm delighted to be here filling in for Jack, who will be back very, very soon. Let me give you those phone numbers, and then we'll go to your springboard topic, which I personally find rather fascinating. Here's the number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205 271 2985. You can also shoot us an email if you prefer that. Openline at EWTN.com, the address. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put either Tuesday in the subject line or Father Wade in the subject line. Those lines are filling up, Father, but uh, let's talk about this how one benefits from the sacramental economy. What are we talking about here?
2: Yeah, that's a phrase that's pretty prominent in our Catholic faith, the sacramental economy, and uh, we should think about it, I think, prominently during the 50-day Easter season when uh, we have a lot of new converts into the faith and the sacraments are, are put before us as the great gifts that Christ instituted for his bride, the Church, and which aid us in our walk toward salvation by God's gratuitous gift of his grace. Huh? So when we say sacramental economy, it's an expression that means the communication of or the dispensation of the fruits of Christ's paschal mystery through the celebration of the sacred liturgy, which itself is the celebration of any of the seven sacraments, okay? Mm-hmm. And how we benefit from that, and that th- the, these workings of the sacraments aid the individual to work out their salvation, as Philippians 2.12 states very clearly. Now, the Paschal Mystery itself is defined as that four event event of our Lord's Passion, Death, Resurrection, and Ascension into Heaven, wrought for our salvation, or brought about for our salvation. So sacramental economy is how the effects of each one of the seven sacraments, because each sacrament effects a particular grace that the other six do not effect in the person's life, the sacramental economy is how these effects are brought about in the individual's life through the Paschal Mystery, that four-event-event. Now, Two ways that we can see this v- really, really clearly, and very beautifully, I might add, are the following. Number one, the fact that the seven sacraments can be broken down in how they aid or benefit the person into three categories. There's the three sacraments of initiation, baptism, Holy Eucharist, and Confirmation meaning they fully initiate the individual into the life of the Church. Huh? Then there's two sacraments of union, Tom, which are at the service of communion to all the populaces of the entire world, we could say. Huh? And those are the sacraments of matrimony and holy orders. Okay. And lastly, the third category that breaks up the seven sacraments into how they aid the person, wherein we can see this sacramental economy, quote-unquote, at mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. are the two sacraments of healing, confession an anointing of the sick. We know, we talk about the body-soul composite. Well, you see it right there in the two sacraments of healing. What's a second model, how we can see this sacramental economy at work? Well, I love this one. The average uh, longevity statistics for those of us living in the West, and I don't mean West Auburn, Kentucky, Tom, or West (laughs) Irondale, Alabama. Okay, Okay, all right. (laughs) The average age of longevity for those of us living in the West is 78 years. 78.8 for the female, 78.4 for The male. The women live a a little longer than us men. I think it's because they're better cooks. Could be. Uh, I I like to joke about that. And I know Adrienne's a great cook because I've benefited from her meals before. (laughs) Yes, yes. But when you look at that average of 78 Mm. years, you can see all seven sacraments plugged in at different points of the individual's life throughout this 78 years. So for example, baptism equals infancy. Holy Eucharist equals childhood. Around age seven, the age of reason. Mm -hmm. That's why we give First Reconciliation and First Holy Communion at age seven, because they can begin to make moral choices. Confirmation, in this country at least, the United States, young adult, usually given between eighth grade and tenth grade. Mm -hmm. Holy orders and matrimony, equal adulthood. Choice of vocation and state in life. How awesome is that? Confession. Equals throughout one's life, once the age of reason is attained around age seven, mm-hmm. penance and reconciliation and a faithful pursuit of God's sanctifying mm-hmm. grace while living out faithfully one's vocation and state in life. How awesome is that? And the anointing of the sick, number seven, Tom, end-of-life stages, regardless of when the person dies, whether it's younger because of illness or maybe an accident, or older as a senior, because of an accident or because of illness, it doesn't matter. Anointing of the sick equals end-of-life stages. So baptism, infancy, Holy Eucharist, childhood, confirmation, young adult, holy orders and matrimony, adulthood, confession throughout one's life, and the anointing of the sick, end-of-life. How awesome is that? That This is the second way we can see the sacramental economy plugged in throughout the entire individual's life, which is an average of 78 years, according to the latest longevity Mm -hmm. statistics. And again, through the three categories of initiation, union, and healing. How awesome is that? You know, number 1116, 1116 of the Catechism says, Tom, very beautifully, the sacraments are powers that come forth from the body of Christ, which is ever-living and ever-life-giving. They are actions of the Holy Spirit at work in Christ's body, the Church. They are the masterworks of God, quote quote, in the new and everlasting covenant established by Jesus Christ. So they are the powers that come forth, huh? There's a great quote from St. Irenaeus in his first century treatise, Against the Heresies, where he says, quote, God is man's glory, man is the vessel which receives God's action, and all of his wisdom and power. Mm. Well, the end of that quote, wisdom and power, we could say the power part there in St. Irenaeus's quote, is part of the reality of the sacraments and the sacramental economy, okay, working in and through the life of Christ's bride, the Church, through her membership made possible by his paschal mystery. Again, his four-event event of his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. How awesome is that?
1: No, absolutely. Pretty awesome.
2: And then I want to quote also here number 1131 from the Catechism. It says, "...the sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the Church, by which divine life is dispensed to us. The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify," meaning they give signs, "...they signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions." So there you have it, Tom, the beautiful, beautiful reality of the sacramental economy of Holy Mother Church, two models of which they're seen, seven sacraments, three categories, again, initiation, union, and healing, and also the fact that all seven sacraments plug in, if you will, at the different points, the different times, the different facets of the individual's life, the average of which, for those of us living in the West— is seventy-eight years. This mm. is what we mean by sacramental economy, working in and through the Paschal Mystery. When we come back from break, I'll just take a quick minute, minute or two and talk about the effect. That's with an E, not an A, not effect, but the effect of each sacrament on the individual's life. Because I said earlier in the springboard just now that each of the seven sacraments effects a particular grace that the other six do not. And we'll talk about that when we come back.
1: Looking forward to that and uh Father, it's actually very economical, isn't it?
2: That's right, that's right. You know, I, I might meet somebody in, in, in the airport, you know, they see the Roman collar, and they want to talk, and mm-hmm. we'll get to talking to them there at the, at the gate there at the, at the airport. Maybe our gates are neighboring one another, or maybe mm-hmm. we're on the same flight, and we'll get to talking. And come to find out their last confession was 40-plus years ago. Wow. And, you know, sitting there talking to them, I want to share with them the beauty of confession, especially, for example, when it's only one of the seven sacraments there's two sacraments that can be received repetitiously and mm-hmm. frequently eucharist and reconciliation and confession and reconciliation confession as reconciliation in the holy eucharist why is that it's because these are the two sacraments tom that sustain us in our vocation and state in life there's a reason why holy mother church wants to give us those two sacraments of the seven both repetitiously and frequently, huh? The other five cannot be received repetitiously and frequently. Three of them can only be received once, that's it, just one time. Baptism, confirmation, and holy orders. The other two... Uh anointing of the sick and matrimony can be received again, but it wouldn't be with a lot of frequency, mm-hmm. like Eucharist and Reconciliation mm-hmm. can be received with a lot of frequency yeah. again and again and again. So, you know, I'll be talking to them, and I'm just, brother or sister, why, why are you keeping yourself so separated from this beautiful tribunal of mercy? And I'll give those effects when we come back.
1: Very good. And I'm just thinking about, uh, you know, how you have to be economical with your time in an airport situation where, uh, you know, time yeah. is of the essence. So Father's going to come back right after the break. We'll also take your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN for Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call one 205 or send us an email to openlineatewtn.com.
1: And it is Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes, our phone number 833-288-EWTN. We have three lines open at the moment. Three are either screened or in the process of being screened by our uh, wonderful call screener, Mr. Matt Kubinski, 833-288-3986. And a quick reminder here before we go back to Father Wade that EWTN Radio is now available on smart speakers like Amazon's Echo, uh, the Google Assistant, and others. For example, you can listen to EWTN Radio just by saying, Alexa... Ask EWTN to play Open Line, and there you go, Father. We've got one in our kitchen. You've been in our kitchen. That's we've, right. That's we've, right. That's... We've got one of those little uh, little smart speakers, and uh, it's a really wonderful way to keep up with your faith, uh, you know, while you're doing other things. Amen. Fantastic. So let us continue our conversation here onto the umbrella topic of sacramental economy.
2: Yeah, so a definition of a sacrament is that it's an outward visible sign instituted by Jesus Christ that effects in the soul, that is, gives the soul mm-hmm. the particular grace. It, signifies. it gives the very grace that it signifies. So let's go through these really quickly. Three sacraments of initiation, baptism, Holy Eucharist, and Confirmation. Baptism takes away original sin and all personal sin, that is, mortal or venial sin, also mm-hmm. called actual sin, because it's actually committed by the individual. Baptism takes away all original sin and all personal sin while uniting us to Christ and his people, huh? This is why if a catechumen comes into the church, uh, Tom, at, say, age 20, at the Easter vigil of a Catholic church, he's entering the Catholic faith. Uh, because of his baptism, he doesn't have to go to confession first. The baptism at the Easter vigil will, per se, wipe away not only the original sin, but any and all personal sin, actual sin, mortal or venial sin, that is, uh, at at the time he receives his baptism, huh? How beautiful is that? Uh, Holy Eucharist gives us the body and blood and soul and divinity, of Jesus is our daily spiritual food to nourish our union with him, and confirmation deepens our union with Christ and helps us proclaim our faith in him before others. The two sacraments of union at the service of communion and mission to the populaces of the world, matrimony and holy orders, matrimony makes a man and a woman, husband and wife, and gives them grace to live with God, for God and each other. And I might add, they mirror the co- their covenant mirrors the very covenantal union between our Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the Church, which he founded. He's the bridegroom, as he says in Scripture. She is his bride, huh? And then Holy Orders gives a man the power of uniting or reuniting believers with God as a deacon, priest, or bishop. Okay, and then lastly, the two sacraments of healing. Confession restores our union with Christ, disrupted by personal or actual sins, committed after baptism— Okay, An anointing of the sick heals and strengthens our union with Christ during times of serious illness. And canon law states very beautifully that one can receive the sacrament of the anointing of the sick whenever one begins to be in danger of death because of sickness or old age. And if one uh, is in what's called a persistent illness state, Tom, like ongoing cancer, for example, um, they are an automatic candidate for the sacrament of the anointing of the sick once a month. And this Mm -hmm. is why you might find some parishes having a monthly uh, Mass wherein they offer the sacrament of the anointing right after the Gospel reading or right after the homily. Mm -hmm. For those who are in a persistent illness state, but yet who are still mobile they can get to the Church, as opposed to a homebound person okay. who's in a persistent illness. So there you have it, the seven effects of the seven sacraments.
1: Beautiful. Well, thank you for unpacking all of that, Father, and if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with William in Concord, New Hampshire, listening on Hope FM. Hey, William, what's on your mind today? Right. So, Father, I have a question about uh, convalidation. So I've Heard what a great blessing this is and and uh and yet it seems to me that priests shouldn't priests be be encouraging parishioners to to seek convalidation because there's so many couples out there who weren't married in the Catholic Church and they don't know that they should be.
2: Yes, and if a Catholic couple is practicing their Catholic faith, and they know that they were not married in the Church, whatever that scenario might have been, they should seek out their pastor and explain their history to their pastor to see if the convalidation is possible. It may not be possible because of a previous bond, a previous... Possibly sacramental bond with a, a former spouse that needs to be uh, fact-finded to mm-hmm. see if an annulment can be granted. Mm-hmm. Remember, an annulment is not automatic, as, as Dr. Anders says uh, earlier today. Said earlier today on his call to communion program, uh, an annulment process is a fact-finding mission, huh? But, but provided uh, there's no barriers, their their union, their secular union, can be convalidated, uh, and this is what they would want to seek out their pastor about to ask. So yes, you make a, an ex excellent, excellent point uh, about that. You know, as a married couple, they they should want to take their union at a natural level Mm -hmm. to a supernatural level, where the sacrament of matrimony, as a sacrament per se, qua sacrament, feeds them both individually and as a covenantal union of partners, of spouses. And that's what's important. they, They should want to mirror the, the bond and relationship between our Lord Jesus Christ and His bride, the Church, uh, in their own covenantal union. So you make a great, great point. So again, if, if, if a couple is out there and they know that they only have a secular union, carried out in whatever fashion, justice mm-hmm. of the peace or, mm-hmm. or you know, uh, with, with maybe a Protestant minister out on the beach, and they know that there's, they're baptized Catholics, and they at least one of them is, and they mm-hmm. uh, want their marriage, their secular union, sacramentalized, they should see their pastor about a possible convalidation to see if they're free to do that.
1: Great call, William. Thanks so much for it. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN, that's 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six Open Line Tuesday here with Father Wade Menezes on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Rallo in San Antonio, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Rallo, what's on your mind today, sir?
3: Yeah, Tom, I just wanted to invite uh, you and um, Father to uh, our beautiful Catholic Church, uh, St. Mary's Catholic Church here in downtown San Antonio. I'm oh. always invited. My comment thank uh, you. to Father was, uh, my, you're welcome. My, thank you, Father. Um, and we're also run by Missionary Oblates of Mary Magdalene, Father John Gordon has a meeting tomorrow with the Oblate Superior, so I'll keep him in prayer. My comment was that I ran into a guy uh, who's thought about He thought about joining a Lodge, a Masonic Lodge, a you know, Scottish Rite. And I told him, sir, you, you don't know what you're doing. You're going to sell your your soul and your blood to Satan, the devil, and the demons, and you can never—I don't care if it's Ku Klux Klan or, or Woodmans of America or— Templars and Knights Templar you're not going you know you you'll be banned, so be careful on your decision and those are my comments, thank you, Father.
2: Yeah, the Church is very clear in her teaching on, on Freemasonry, uh, and it's easy enough to find. You know, EWTN.com, Frequently Asked Questions, uh, Catholic.com with our friends at uh, Catholic Answers, mm-hmm. uh, based in San Diego. Those are the two websites for for FAQ sections, Frequently Asked Questions sections, that you can find a, a ready answer about that. Also, Father John Harden's Catechism is very um, topic-specific. In fact, uh, John Paul II looked to Father Hardin's Catechism, uh, when he was putting together the Universal Catechism, which came out uh, in 1992, but the English version came out in 1994. Um, and 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 so this is what we want to look to, is, is the teaching of the Church. So the teachings and practices of a secret international organization known as Freemasonry, who, whose modern origins date from the first quarter of the 18th century, um is rooted in in the fraternity of deus in europe and its basic orientation has been naturalistic um so so what, what deists believe is that um god does not hold the world in its existence he creates the world but then somehow stands back and lets the world take its own course on its own merit and and we don't believe that we believe that that human instruments uh, have a have an active role to play uh, for good or ill in the history of the world and its historicity, but we believe that God sustains all things and that God lets things run according to their natures. But he's, he's an ever-present God, and so that's the problem with that right there. So it, it's been asked whether there has been any change in the Church's decision in regard to Masonic associations since the new Code of Canon Law does not mention them expressly, mm-hmm. uh, unlike the previous Code of 1917, but, but the sacred congregation... Uh, did, of the St. Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, when it was headed by Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, now Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, did give out a statement on Freemasonry and how we are not able to have a, a membership in Freemasonry. So uh, the faithful who enroll in Masonic associations uh, are in a state of grave sin and may not receive Holy Communion until the situation is remedied. It's, it's not within the, the competence of local ecclesiastical mm-hmm. authorities to give judgment on the nature of Masonic associations, which would imply apply a type of derogation what has been decided already by the universal Church, Mm -hmm. and that has to be taken into account. But again, uh, EWTN.com and also Catholic.com, our friends at Catholic Answers, uh, two great websites to get good synthesis on the teaching of Freemasonry.
1: Rollo, thanks again for your call. Let's go to Christopher, a first-time caller in Pennsylvania, watching today on Facebook Live. Hey Christopher, what's on your mind today?
0: Good afternoon, Father. I have a question. I've been a Catholic for 67 years, and I always question this because I see it in the examination of conscience in in some places, some places you don't. Vulgar and obscene language are four-letter words. Is it a mortal sin? Is it a venial sin? I I always consider it a sin. uh, Could you... And what commandment does it forbid? The sixth?
2: Well, it's always... It's always, always a bad habit, and whether it's using the Lord's name in vain or cursing that does not use the Lord's name in vain, it's, it's a very bad habit, and, and whether it's using the Lord's name in vain or not, it falls under the second commandment that thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain. Remember, each of the Ten Commandments branches out into the moral life of the individual, and so this is where we see bad language. Again, whether it uses God's name specifically in vain or not, it falls under that second commandment, thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain. Um, it's a bad habit all the time. To answer your question very specifically, we have to ask ourselves, what is a mortal sin? A mortal sin is something that is grave matter, it's done with fullness of knowledge that it's grave matter, Mm -hmm. and it's done with deliberate consent of your will anyway. Grave matter, done with fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of your will. So if you're out working in your woodshop and you hit your thumb with your hammer, And you uh, blurt out an expletive, um, I doubt the will was involved there. (laughs) I think the greater issue there is that you're not trained enough in virtue to hold yourself passionately in check when something like that happens at the spur of the moment that causes pain. That's the bigger issue here. Okay. So in that scenario I doubt there's fullness of will involved, but it's still grave matter and you could have had full knowledge that it's grave matter to use such an expletive, but there wasn't full consent of your will because the sudden hit of the th- of the hammer upon your thumb just mm-hmm. caused you to blurt it
1: out. Almost so, like a re- almost like a reflex.
2: Almost like a reflex, but the thing is though, that's an excellent point, Tom. The thing is though, we can train in a certain regard certain reflexes mm-hmm. you know by saying something silly instead of saying something that's a, that's a gross expletive so so just it's it's always a bad habit and it could be a mortal sin it's almost always at least venial uh, unless it catches you off guard
1: great question there christopher thanks for your call we've got a line open for you right now hey that's why we call it open line 833 288 EWTM that's 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. 3986 Open line Tuesday with Father Wade.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Very glad that you're with us for Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. A couple of lines open at the moment. Eight three three two eight eight ewtn That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. 3986 This is not a news program, but we do have breaking news, right, Father?
2: That's right, just a a, a few hours ago uh, the U.S. Bishops Conference announced a request that Catholics in the U.S. pray the Rosary this coming Friday, May 13th, amid growing demonstrations over the possibility that Roe v. Wade will soon be overturned. The The bishops asked that Catholics pray for the U.S. and that Roe will be overturned for the conversion of the hearts and minds of those who advocate for abortion, for a culture of life in America, and for the guidance of the Blessed Virgin Mary as the Church continues to walk with mothers and families in need, Mm. especially those as well with unplanned pregnancies, and she continues, the Church does, to continue to promote alternatives to abortion and seeks to create a beautiful, beautiful culture of life. And I might add that uh, this Friday is the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima, an especially fitting day for the Rosary when she told the Three Shepherd children how important the Rosary was for world peace. So this Friday... Uh, be sure to pray the rosary for these intentions, uh, and you can find this uh, online. Uh, it's, it's all over the, the, the internet right now, so Certainly. you can find it so This Friday, May 13th.
1: Okay, and uh overturning Roe v. Wade, it is a tall order, but as we know, with God all things are possible, right? Yep, that's right. That's, that's exactly right. That's how we roll. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN, and let us go to uh, Tommy, a first-time caller in Milton, Florida, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Tommy, what's on your mind today? Hey, I've got thank you for your program and I'm, I'm I might lose you with my connection, but I got a quick <laughs> question for Father. All right. Um it I was just always wondering after um, communion and the Eucharist, and I think that would be like the most awesome, should be like the awesome time of the Mass, um, we, as opposed to maybe some deep prayers or something more uplifting, we have to watch the priest or the deacon, you know, fold up the napkins and the altar vessels or whatever, and I was just curious on why why that's in that particular part of the Mass, and I'll hang up and listen.
2: Okay. Okay, Great. Well, thank you, uh, Tommy, for your question. What you're witnessing is what's called the purifications, uh, which take place uh, toward the end of the Communion rite, uh, the purification. So the sacred vessels are cleansed appropriately, There's several options. They can be done at the altar in the center, they can be done at the altar off to the side, they can thirdly be done at the credence table, separate from the altar, and in cases of necessity, they can even be purified completely after the Mass is completely over, after the final collect prayer, the final a blessing, and the final sending. They can be cleaned up afterwards, or purified is the more appropriate word afterwards, after the Mass. Um, so that's what you're witnessing is, is purifications. You, you're mentioning the folding of the napkins. Actually it's not a napkin, it's, it's, it's called a corporal, coming from the Latin corpus, which means body. And the corporal is placed on the altar linen itself, the actual altar cloth. Uh, Think of a tablecloth, but something much more sacred than that. Um, the the altar cloth is the complete cloth over the entire mensa, M-E-N-S-A, the entire top of the altar. The corporal goes on top of that. It, it's, it's square or, or rectangular in shape, and it's, it, it's large enough to be able to put the chalice or chalices on it, uh, as well as the patent or patents which hold the unconsecrated hosts uh, throughout the Eucharistic prayer, which become the Body and Blood of our Lord during the words of consecration. When you're seeing that folding of the corporal at the very end of Mass, Mm -hmm. it's because they're folding the corporal inward to be able to catch any particles that may have fallen Ah. onto the corporal during the Mass. And then those corporals, along with the purificators, which is the cloth that the priest holds under his chin when he's consuming the precious blood, or the deacon does the same, uh, are purified in a very special way uh, according to uh, several Eucharistic documents, both from John Paul II and from the post-conciliar uh, documents of, of right after Vatican II, uh, uh, two at least uh, two uh, washings uh, of, of of just pure water, and then after that second rinsing of of washing, uh, then an actual washing, washing where you don't need to be concerned about the sacred particles anymore. Right. But the first two are uh, you need to take the, the basin of water and pour it into this aquarium, which goes right into the earth, or pour it into the ground uh, just outside the sacristy. We do that once or twice, uh, preferably twice, I believe it can be done only one time, mm-hmm. uh, and then you can go into the actual full soap washing, and that water does not need to be Um, tossed out in a sacred way, but the initial one needs to, and I believe that um, uh, Ecclesia De Eucharistia by John Paul II uh, mentions a second washing is preferable. Uh, uh, I'm saying washing, I I really mean rinsing before you do the actual washing. So you're seeing that folding of not a napkin, you're seeing the folding of the corporal, and it's done for a reason to contain all particles that may have fallen on the corporal.
1: Appreciate uh, your call today. It is Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes here on EWTN. Samuel's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Samuel says, "Isn't speaking to deceased saints and asking for their intercession an act of necromancy? It's a highly forbidden act. Not that it's possible, but because it's an abomination to perform sorcery." What do you think, there, Father? Well, it's not—it's
2: not sorcery when you're when you're not asking to change the future. That's what okay. sorcery does. Okay. Okay, and it nor is it necromancy, a communication with with the dead, uh, because we believe in the communion of saints and that the souls are quite alive, whether in purgatory, being purified, or in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, the truly, truly dead souls uh, are those in hell by their own doing. Okay. But but and even they're alive. Even they're alive, okay? But but we don't believe in a communion with the damned. Uh, We believe in a communion with the saints. And so there's the members of the Church militant still living on earth, members of the Church triumphant who have already attained the crown that does not wither, St. Paul says, and then there's the holy souls in purgatory, members of the Church suffering, also known as members of the Church militant. So I, I would recommend that you read the section in the Universal Catechism on the doctrine of the communion of saints of this three-tiered hierarchy known as the doctrine of the communion of saints, again, the Church militant on earth, the Church triumphant in heaven, and the Church suffering or the Church penitent um, in purgatory. By the way, the members of the Church penitent, we don't hear that too often, and yet it's one of the official titles of the holy souls in purgatory. We Mm -hmm. often hear of the suffering souls or members of the Church suffering, Uh but Holy Mother Church also calls the holy souls in purgatory members of the Church penitent. By the way, who are assured heaven, right? One more reason why we include them and the communion of saints' doctrine.
1: Appreciate uh, your question, Samuel. Thanks for watching us today on YouTube. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade here on EWTN. Let's go now to Joe in Lafayette, Indiana, listening on YouTube. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today, sir?
3: Hi, thank you for taking my call. I'm a uh, young, 22-year-old Catholic. Uh, I really uh, have fallen in love with the faith through uh, the Mass, uh, especially the traditional Latin Mass, but
2: Mm
0: -hmm. I know that uh, it has kind of been suppressed lately, and I wonder, with the ordinary form, I know ad orientum is one way that we could bring back some more reverence to the Mass,
2: but what are some other ways uh, that I could help implement in my parish
0: to give greater devotion and reverence to the Eucharist in my parish?
2: Okay. Well, beautiful question there, uh, Joe. And and within the celebration of the sacred liturgy, the celebration of the Eucharist itself, uh, you know, Vatican II's document on uh, the sacred liturgy, Sacrosanctum Sanctum Concilium, Latin for this most sacred council, talks about the noble simplicity with all due reverence, solemnity, and devotion of the ordinary form of the Mass, that is, the Reformed Roman Rite. I don't like to call it the Novus Ordo anymore, because it's 55-plus years old. Uh, when are we going to quit calling it New, the New yeah, Mass? It, yeah. it's, it's, the, it's the Reformed Roman Rite, yes, mm-hmm. but let's use the language of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, who calls it the ordinary form of the Mass, and then the, the traditional Latin Mass is the extraordinary form of the Mass. So we still use those two phrases, all right? Um, in, in regards to the ordinary form, all do reverence, and devotion, with a certain noble simplicity, with the ordinary parts of the Mass uh, being chanted in the Latin, with uh, the the, uh, propers, uh, for example, example, the entrance chant, like we do here at the Fathers of Mercy, we don't have an opening hymn, we have the the entrance antiphon chanted, uh, with the gloria interspersed, Uh, same thing quite often with the communion antiphon, um, the, the responsorial psalm being chanted. There's some beautiful English propers of the of the responsorial psalm that can be added. The sanctus, the Agnus Dei, that is the uh, holy, holy, holy in the Lamb of God. Uh, the gloria, which is the glory to God in the highest. Uh, There's also the creed, the credo. Also, a simple recto tono chant is very, very beautiful, and it's very ancient, and it's very simple, and it's very easy. Um, Just this last Sunday, I was a celebrant here at the Father's Mercy, and for the penitential right at the beginning of the Mass, we chanted... um, the confidior, the I confess to Almighty God, all recto tono, all on one note. I introduced it, and the, and the congregation followed, you know. Uh, recto tono simply means that you chant on one note and never deviate from that wow. note. So, okay. you know, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a church with all hard surfaces, my goodness, that, that recto tono chant, mm. just it just... It just... Is so beautiful in, in, in the chapel of divine mercy here at the Fathers of Mercy main residence. So there's many things that we can do according to the Vatican II document, uh Sacro Sanctum Concilium, huh? Is is very, very beautiful. Remember, Benedict uh the 16th, Pope Emeritus said the two rites, the ordinary form and, and the and the excuse me, one rite, the two forms, the ordinary form and the extraordinary form, should learn from one another. Huh? That that's important, I think. Uh-huh. By the way, uh, Joe, the Fathers of Mercy. Uh, recently celebrated, uh, recently started celebrating the ordinary form of the Mass, uh, uh, ad orientum, that is facing east, facing towards the east because during the pandemic, uh, we felt that we needed uh, leadership and leading the people through these troubled times uh, to give them hope, and we believe the ad orientum posture uh, shows that, that that, that the, the priest is leading the people, the celebrant is leading the people to the through the holy of holies uh, to, to heaven, and that's beautifully uh, illustrated in the actual posture of the ad orientum So great series of questions, Joe. Just have a good uh, uh, relationship uh, with your with your pastor and letting him know that you love the sacred liturgy, you're familiar with the documents, and you have you know you'd love to meet with him about some of these things, and uh, hopefully he would have an open ear to hear you out, and hopefully he himself personally would be open to such changes.
1: God bless you, Joe. Thanks so much for your call. It is Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade here on EWTN. Coming up tonight, it's Mother Angelica Live Classics at 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN television and radio. Tonight, Mother reflects on what life in heaven will be like and when the souls of the faithful will be reunited with their bodies. In my case, Father, I'm hoping for no love handles, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> That's tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television. All right, let's go now to Annette, a first-time caller in Amarillo, Texas, listing on Facebook Live. Annette, what's on your mind today?
0: I have a question regarding forgiveness.
1: Okay. Hey, like Annette, what is know,
0: it? I'd like to know, when you forgive a person and— Sometimes you reconcile with that person, and when you see them, you speak, and you just go about your day. But what about those who forgive forgiven their heart but never reconcile? How is it in heaven, you know, like when you kind of go to a family gathering, and they say, Well, I'll go if this one doesn't go, or if that one doesn't go, yeah. but I won't go. Okay, yeah, so... <laughs>
2: Good question and good, good analogy, by the way, with the family gatherings, because yeah, yeah. we all want to go to heaven. So you may not have reconciliation uh, physically and personally in this life, but reconciliation is always, always possible by a frequent and fervent and deliberate act of your will. So let's say you want to reconcile with a sibling that you had a falling out with, and you've tried several times now, whether it was your fault that the falling out took place or whether it was his fault that the falling out took place, the fact is you want to reconcile, and you've reached out several times to want to reconcile. And this sibling is just not open to it. It's just God knows that you've made the attempt to be reconciled. God knows that you desire on a continuum to want to be reconciled with that sibling. In fact, the last time you talked to that sibling... You said something to the effect, please know the door is always open. I'm here for you if you ever do want to reconcile. In other words, you've done your part Mm. so that should you die suddenly in a type of an accident, let's say a car accident, you could meet your maker face to face and say, Lord, I did everything to reconcile with that one sibling, even though I never saw the fruits of it. He didn't want to reconcile. I did everything in my power to want to reconcile. Our Lord will look at you and say, yes, you did. Well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah. Now enter into your Father's house, either immediately or through a prior purgation, because again, the holy souls in purgatory, the Church suffering, the Church penitent, are assured heaven, right? Yeah. Uh, that That's besides the fact. The fact is, you can meet your Maker and say you've done everything in your will, your part, on your part, to want to be reconciled, and God understands that. So you may not see the physical fruits, the emotional fruits of a reconciliation in this life, but you can Always, always be reconciled through your personal forgiveness, wanting to be reconciled with the person through a frequent and, and fervent and deliberate act of the will, and God takes that into account. Never, ever forget yeah,
1: that. Yeah, great call, Annette, and um, I'm sure, Father, that there are a lot of people who are in that position, that very position where they've got family members that they're estranged from, that, you know, for whatever reason, they just can't see eye to eye, but you just have yeah. to you have to do your best and, and then uh, leave the rest to God.
2: You know, there, there's a great quote by St. Jean-Marie Vainy, the patron saint of parish priests, he says, "...we never, ever heal ourselves." by wounding another. Wow. Amen to that. Amen. And St. John Paul II says something also about uh, being other-centered in reconciliation. He Mm -hmm. says, the giving of oneself actually brings with it an enriching of oneself. The giving of oneself actually brings with it an enriching of oneself. How awesome is that? So Beautiful. we need to be other-centered. We need to strive to heal uh, fallouts, we need to strive to heal wounds, division, etc. Uh, th- th- look, look, the devil loves it when family members especially are torn apart. Mm-hmm. He loves it when marriages are torn apart. Don't let him have the upper hand, huh? don't let it. him have that upper hand. Great question, thank you so much.
1: Appreciate that. Let's go to Rob in Nebraska right now, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey, Rob, what's on your mind today? So I was reading the, the gospel of
2: uh, Luke's Gospel's account of the Last Supper, and at the very end is where before they go out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus um says to them, you know, Hey, in the future you're gonna have to bring your person, and, and if you don't have a sword, go out and buy one. Um, and then, just a little bit later, when they're out on the Mount of Olives and um, Jesus is arrested, Peter pulls out a sword, um, slices off the, the slave, high priest slave's ear, and then Jesus admonishes, admonishes Peter for having the sword. So, I I can understand what's going on during the rest, but the arrest. I have a hard time understanding why Jesus is telling them to carry us to go out and buy a sword. Okay. Just before yeah, you know that. some some of the church fathers have addressed that very passage. You know, uh, t- t- take 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 only sandals, take one tunic, Mm -hmm. uh, etc., to take no money. Uh, If they welcome you, go into their home, have the meal that is set before you. If they do not, uh, shake the dust from your feet and move forward to the next town, etc. So, you know, the sword could have been for wild beasts uh, to protect themselves in this initial evangelization while our Lord was still living. But But you're right that it's very clear why our Lord didn't want the sword brought out during the night of the arrest, because He didn't want His plan, His Father's plan, and Him being... Uh, totally in in union of will with the father he didn 't want his plan of dying on the cross interrupted by man 's stupidity, right which would take place the next day on good friday mm-hmm. and if If the swords would have started swinging uh, in, in, the mount, in in the garden of Gethsemane on the night of the rest, who knows how that would have ended up right oh, yeah. so so Jesus wanted to be in total conformity of, of the father 's will who who wanted his Son to go to the cross for all of mankind. Again, the Paschal mystery, the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord into heaven. And so Jesus did not want that thwarted. There's also the message of trying to reconcile without um, harsh uh, means, uh, weapons and so forth, uh, first and that weapons should only be used when in a sincere case of self-defense. So Jesus wanted to see if this can be reconciled, men among men, mm-hmm. without leading into something that was catastrophic in the Garden of Gethsemane that night before he went to the cross. Right. So, so good points on, on both regards, uh, and a great question.
1: Rob, thanks for, more, for that. Uh, let's go to Chris now, a first-time caller in California, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? yes, uh,
3: well, um, a visionary on the uh, service of Christ said that um touching the host a non-consecrated hands touching the host is a sacrilege and the priest who allows this will be judged severely. Is that true?
2: Well, Holy Mother Church Universal permits it if it's done correctly, so I would say that it is not true, and, and, and you don't say the visionary's name or what what apparition or, or locution they're associated with, and, and I don't need to know, that's not important. It's enough for me to know as a priest who is cum ecclesia, with the Church, not super ecclesia, not above the Church, not sub ecclesia, not under the Church, but cum ecclesia, right in line with the chair of Peter, swerving neither left nor right, and her liturgical documents permit communion on the hand, provided it's done correctly. So for example, those of you watching right now in our live YouTube feed or our live Facebook feed, you can see my hands, you make a true Eucharistic throne. One complete palm open over the other complete palm. It doesn't matter which one's on top and which one's on the bottom, left or right or vice versa, but you make a true Eucharistic throne. Also, your hands should be clean. Thirdly, you should do a sign of reverence before you go to receive with your Eucharistic throne, both of your palms, one open the other. That's usually uh, understood to be a a waist bow, or at least a slight waist bow, because there's people in front of you still in line, Mm -hmm. you don't want to hit them with your head. Uh, A slight waist bow uh, before you receive, so that right after your waist bow, and you're ready to receive, you receive with your Eucharistic throne. Fourthly, your amen in the ordinary form should be audible. You need to say amen allowed for the one giving you Holy Communion, whether it's a priest or deacon or bishop or a properly deputed extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, when they say the body of Christ, they should hear your amen. Some people ask me, Father Wade, what do you think is the greatest liturgical abuse today, especially during the communion rite? And I, I say, really? In, in my missionary travels? I'd say it's the inaudible Amen. People just don't say they their amen out loud, mm. and the amen is an act of faith. The person distributing Holy Communion says the body of Christ, and the recipient says amen, Hebrew for so be it. In other words, your amen, quote-unquote, is an act of faith in the ordinary rite. Okay, now in the extraordinary form, it's silent. You don't say amen out loud, but I'm talking about the ordinary form now. So clean hands, a true Eucharistic th- a throne, the sign of reverence beforehand— and the audible amen. This is important. And there's also ways not to receive directly on the tongue. Like, there's people, for example, who want to receive on the tongue, but they don't put their tongue out at all. So the one who's distributing Holy Communion literally needs to enter their mouth with their thumb and index finger to to give them the sacred and consecrated host. That's not proper. You should put out your tongue appropriately... You know, yeah. um, and again, an audible amen before you receive directly mm-hmm. on the tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, clean breath is important, uh, as opposed to bad breath. This is the sacred liturgy. It's it's kind of tied to to beautiful dress, and and again, the noble simplicity of the Roman rite and you know, modest dress, beautiful dress, uh, because we're giving our all to our Lord, right? And the audible amen is also part of that reality. So great question. The Church permits it, we are ecclesia, we are with the Church, but it's not just enough to say the Church permits communion on the hand. Mm -hmm. We have to say how Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ, permits holy communion on the hand. And these are some of the points that the documents tell us to follow.
1: Thank you, Chris. And let's Great go, question. Yeah, let's go to uh, Janelle now in Spokane, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Janelle, what's on your mind today?
3: Well, I just turned in towards the end part when you were talking about reconciliation with people. Yes. Yeah. And there's two different people that come to my mind. Um, one, uh, you know, I forgive them in my mind, but um, one—how um, do I say this? Uh I mean, on both of them, I really wouldn't want to cultivate the relationship anymore. One's a relative, so I, right. would, so I know the demonic's in here. I've even seen the demonic, and because of that person's just the way she is, I don't even yeah. want her in my house anymore. So Yeah,
2: Janelle, you, Janelle, you make an excellent point. Um, there could be a relationship that had the falling out where it's actually safer for you not to have the physical or emotional reconciliation, Mm. correct? Is that what you're trying to say? It's better just to keep it at bay. In other words, boundaries can be good, right? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. There's a great series, uh, a a CD series by Father Emmerich Vogt. Uh, He's uh, founder of the 12-Step Review. He's out of Portland, Oregon. You can find his name simply enough in his site. Vogt is V-O-G-T, the German spelling, V-O-G-T, Father Emmerich. Vote, Detaching with Love series, and it talks about just that because it's based on the 12-step program. And remember, one of the 12 steps is uh, you made an attempt to reconcile provided the reconciliation would not cause further problems for you or the other party. That's my wording, not the 12-step wording, but that's what it's trying to convey. So that's what you're trying to say, too, is sometimes boundaries are good. So even though you purposefully, with a deliberate act of the will on a continuum, want the reconciliation, and, it's, and you need to do that much, like you just said, you have forgiven the, these two persons, it can actually be healthier not to have the physical, emotional reconciliation with them because they themselves are not healed yet yeah. and the same thing could happen again. Great, great point, Janelle.
1: Thank you so much. A uh, good friend of ours always says, sometimes we need to love them from afar.
2: Yeah, excellent. Boundaries can be good. Exactly. What we
1: got to do. We could not get to Anthony calling in. We also couldn't get to uh, Leonard, who checked in on YouTube. If you folks would uh, please check in with us tomorrow or on the day of your choice, we'll get to those questions ASAP. Father, your blessing, please.
2: Certainly, Tom. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners this day and always, especially during this Easter season, and remain with you all always. St. Joseph, terror of demons.
1: Pray for us. Thank you, Father, and thanks to everybody. We'll see you next time here on Open Line. God bless.